0: I am Katie Rich. I am here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And once again with Chris Murphy.
3: Hi. People are going to get sick of BA <laughs> theory.
0: You got to ride this as long as it'll take you. I'll take it. This week, we're continuing our Pride Flashback series with a look at BPM, the 2017 French film about Act Up Paris. Uh, And Richard and Chris will be joined by some fellow uh, Broadway dorks for a Tony's preview because that's an award show that's coming up right now, uh, unlike the Emmys, which are so far in the future. Um, But first, before we get into any of that, there's been some news over at the Academy. Uh, There is going to be a new CEO of the Academy. Um, And David, I'm going to throw to you pretty much right away, since when I saw this as a You had information about what this all means, and I would like you to share it with me and everyone else.
4: It means that those inside the Academy are pretty happy from sources I've spoken with. Uh, Bill Kramer was the CEO of the Academy Museum uh, and was really the the figurehead behind getting that off the ground. So he's developed a lot of relationships, and he's very proven uh, in the specific areas that I think those within the organization we're hoping to see from uh, the successor to Don to Don Hudson as the CEO. Um, you know, I think the Academy is in a particularly perilous moment right now after last year's Oscars, the not only handling of the of what happened with Will Smith, but the communication bungles were so frequent and severe that I think, all involved look at Kramer as a really smart fresh start who knows a lot of talent, knows a lot of people uh, was very instrumental in one of the academy's bigger PR boons of late and um, the, being yeah, the museum yeah, yeah being the museum and I think yeah. uh, they're they're satisfied this was this is what they were hoping to happen
0: when you say fresh start I mean given that he's kind of already inside the house, like he's obviously a new person but it seems like he's like a, a steady hand who has a little bit of a new direction but nothing too crazy.
4: Exactly. I think in terms of fresh start, you're looking at somebody who is within that you know academy umbrella, somebody that is seen as you know very competent and very personable. There were definitely some mixed feelings from what I gathered about Don's tenure generally. And so I think everyone's just looking forward to a new chapter after everything that happened last year.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, Dawn held that position for 11 years and through so much change, you know, some of it, most of it, obviously beyond her control, but I think she became such a polarizing figure just because she had to deal with Oscar So White and diversifying the voter body and then envelope gate and now the Will Smith slap and there's been something almost every year and and you know even when the Academy Museum was taking forever to be built and costing so much money i feel like a lot of the blame went to her and then Kramer was actually brought in to sort of not to replace her but to replace the person who had been in charge of making that academy museum happen and and he kind of helped get it back on track. So I I agree from everything I'm hearing, too. It just feels like it's time for some some fresh blood, (laughs) really, because, you know, Don had to be in charge of it for so long and through so much turmoil.
4: And to Rebecca's point, I mean, a good chunk of that was obviously out of Don's control. I mean, if you think about where the Oscars were 11 years ago, you're not going to even necessarily point to mishaps that happened on their stage, but just the dramatic changes in the way we watch and talk about movies. And the Oscars have certainly struggled to respond to a lot of that. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, say, Bill Kramer would have handled it better. Um, But, you know, having gone over those bumps, I think there's some hope that there is opportunity for a less bumpy next few years.
0: I was interested reading the Ankler report about Bill Kramer, um, kind of when it was still rumored that he would be in there. And it pointed out that when the Academy Museum opened, there were a good number of people who thought that it omitted the Jewish history of Hollywood. I think probably as part of their efforts, you know, I went there— A couple months ago, and they really go out of their way to highlight, like, filmmakers of color and actors of color and places where Hollywood has failed those people. Um, But it's said that uh, we've heard that Kramer has worked hard to meet with and listen to critics and is busy evolving the museum to take these criticisms into account. And part of being CEO of the Academy, I think, is knowing that you're never going to make everybody happy (laughs) because there's just always going to be someone complaining. But someone who's already had that experience of trying to smooth over ruffled feathers while keeping an eye on diversifying in the future, that seems like a really good balance.
4: Yeah, definitely.
0: So we're going to go on to our Pride flashback for this week. And uh, Chris, this was your pick to talk about BPM, a 2017 film that I have put here sort of as a a fake chronological order deal. Because last week we talked about Rebel Without a Cause from the 50s, and this movie is set in the early 90s, which makes it the... uh, the next earliest setting of the films we'll discuss. But this is a much more recent film, and I think you, know, you watch it for 10 minutes and you realize it can only be made now. But um, Chris, why did this feel like of, of all the potential movies we could have discussed, why was this the one you picked?
3: Um, that's a great question, Katie, and I did start off by apologizing to our team for uh, having to watch a two-and-a-half-hour uh, French movie um, that is about the AIDS crisis. It's not the easiest to watch, but it is really, I think, a beautiful, beautiful film, and It sort of, as you said, although it was uh, made in 2017, it captures a sort of a queer narrative and sort of a standard queer narrative that we've seen since sort of the 80s and 90s that used to sort of be like the only queer narrative that used to appear on screen in terms of, you know, capturing, you know, how devastating and frankly horrific and terrible the AIDS crisis was. I mean, we've seen it in a lot of different films and plays and musicals Angels in America, The Normal Heart by Larry Kramer. Uh, the Inheritance most recently. I mean, Rent is like sort of the biggest seminal one, I would say, at least for me as a musical theater head. Um, and even Philadelphia, um, the Tom Hanks' uh, Oscar winning film. So I just thought that like for Pride and for, as a great way to sort of kick off and sort of like look back while we move forward, I think BPM is sort of a perfect film because it is, you know, it was made only five years ago in 2017, but it really is classic and really, I think of, excellent entry in the genre of sort of a depressing and sad, but very vital and very necessary to watch clear narrative of how devastating the AIDS crisis was and is still.
0: Richard, I want to throw to you because uh, you put BPM at the top of your top 10 list in 2017. Um, and I'm imagining that oh, wow. you still stand by that.
5: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's an AIDS movie that, you know... <sighs> There are other things like it, but I think that what Robin Campio does so beautifully is is trained that gaze in one direction toward the Larry Kramer, the political action of the normal heart. And then, you know, we have this one, I mean, staggering scene of death, but before that, and even kind of in that, he allows for so much life, you know? And I think that oftentimes in, in movies from the 80s or 90s about people uh, living with AIDS, the sick person kind of gets a little cordoned off into that sadness, and that uh, you know, and it's people concerned about them, and you know, uh, they're they're a little bit removed from from life. And in this, though, I mean, you know, there's sex. There's a really, really moving handjob scene in a hospital. Like, yeah. really yeah. moving. I, I, I think that the way that Robin Campillo just uses all parts of the human experience to um, locate us in this very fraught time in Paris is just so beautiful and and ingenious like it's it's a really fresh approach i think to this material and um yeah it's still very resonant five years later and the rumor is that jury president at can pedro moldovar really wanted to give it the palm door but some of the other people in the jury didn't feel quite so hot on it and so uh they gave it to the consensus pick the square
3: it's i totally agree in terms of like this sort of the the joy and the the queer joy and sort of the sexiness of this film. And it's one of those things where I feel like a lot of people recently have complained that like we need to get away from, you know, the sort of overwrought and overplayed sort of, AIDS play narrative and we really need more films with queer joy and fun. I mean, we just talked about Fire Island. I think that's a great example of like all these, po- <laughs> you know, the possibility of all these other queer narratives that we can tell. But as Richard said, I do think that like, this film really like it holds space for both um, and especially in Pride Month. And I know this is a Pride series and we're in Pride Month right now a lot of this movie takes place at Pride or is like sort of centered around Pride. And as we like sort of, you know, we make all these jokes, which are very true about like corporate Chase Bank Pride. It's very easy to forget like why the whole thing exists at all in a way, you know, because we're, you know, we've sort of gotten past this moment. So I think BPM is a really, it's a wonderful film to sort of remind us, oh, this is, this is why, you know, the marches and this month is important and why, yeah, we need to, actually, you know, take time to celebrate and also to protest and also to fight for our rights.
0: It's funny that even in this movie in the early 90s, they're like, oh, Pride, it's all going to be so stupid. Like, even then. (laughs) They knew, they knew.
4: (laughs) It's it's also interesting uh, to that point. I remember watching this movie near the end of 2017, and that was a pretty big year for queer film. We had Call Me mm-hmm. By Your Name. We had Beach Rats. We had God's Own Country. A Fantastic um, Woman,
3: too. That are-
4: A Fantastic Woman, yeah. All movies that I really like, um, the most part, uh, those are pretty, those are downers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially, like, I remember coming out of Beach Rats and just, like, kind of being <laughs> catatonic for a few hours. It was pretty, it hit me pretty hard. Um, and and this one, it it has just so much space for life. I mean, it, it's it's a messier movie than some of those. It's not quite as compact or well. You mentioned the two and a half hours, Chris, <laughs> um, or tonally consistent. But it, I, I think that's why I love it so much. It it just it it kind of pulsates to the mm. title of the film um, with a real feel for. Um, being inside that kind of movement, um, fighting for your life and fighting for your community's lives. And there's a real energy to that that I didn't forget about, but revisiting it now, is like, oh, yes, I remember the exact context in which I first watched this movie. And it, it, it kind of went down the same way again, which was cathartic almost. I remember the
0: energy of the dance scenes which kind of recur throughout the movie and I think means something different every time. But I had forgotten how electric the the conversation scenes. They're all in this like college lecture hall yelling at each other in French but I can like feel the energy of the conversation and the disagreements and people snapping when they agree with something or don't and you've got... um Sean, this main character, who's like kind of in some ways the most uh, confrontational of some people in the group, uh, and you just hang on every word that they say. Again, even though it's in French, a language I do not speak, I was amazed by the the flow of that dialogue and so many of those really long scenes. How much they they grab you?
2: Yeah, I think you yeah. can really. It's the way he captures that sense of urgency that is just it's so powerful. And I don't, I'm not an easy cry, but I have cried every. Time I've seen this movie in Cannes during Ward season that year, and and three days ago during that last uh, scene, I just it's just the way he builds it all to that um, is just so powerful, and and you know a lot of those like meeting scenes or even when they're meeting with doctors and pharmaceutical companies could come off so dry, but just the way they film it and and the actors, it just all feels so
3: powerful, and it's just a. Really phenomenal storytelling. It is, and so that leads me. I wasn't at Vanity Fair in twenty seventeen. I wasn't an Oscar expert back then, as uh, all of you might have been. Um, Why didn't it get nominated? (laughs) It just blows my mind because it it was so wonderful. I remember watching it in twenty seventeen, and like that sort of like stirred. You know, it really. I was very upset, Um, and I still, to this day, I don't really understand how it sort of just did not get a, a best foreign language film nomination.
5: Well, I think the sex is one reason why. Uh, mm. And I think the politics is the other. I mean, I, the, the complaint that I heard at Cannes a lot um, from people who were, you know, uh, perhaps predisposed to liking the film was that, oh, the, oh, there's so many of these talking scenes and they're going over and over and the politics of it. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. Like, it, it, it it's, supposed, <laughs> it's supposed to show that, like, the surreality of what was happening, these young men dropping dead left and right all around you that that had to be met with all of this bureaucratic discussion. The contrast there is so, it's wild, you know, but that was the reality of it. And I think that, like, Campillo is, is admirable for leaning into the sex of it, yes, but also for forcing the audience to really sit with, like, the process of trying to get this thing recognized and treated, you know, um, and uh, I think that something about that energy that may be a little bit brash, kind of aggressive, like, no, you're going to sit and listen to us talk this through maybe alienated too many uh, viewers.
4: Yeah, and this was before uh, the now international branch um, instituted a kind of save system where it had become frequently controversial the kinds of films that would be passed over. Um, This is a very finicky group of voters, as we've learned, um, and their selection process is unique compared to um, other branches and other categories. So uh, it's also just a case of, you know, you take all those points that Richard made, and then even if it's uh, widely acclaimed, relatively widely seen um, movie as it was uh, in that year, and even as France is one of the best performers in this category consistently, it was always the case that a movie that could rankle like that uh, would miss the cut. And that did happen this, that year. Um, I, I think it was actually cited as one of the examples of why... Um, they did institute a, a change well, to the system. Well, where does
0: this fall in the Academy's international membership drive? Like, I'm looking at the the page for it, and this is the last year. Fantastic Woman actually won that year, which is interesting. Um, but it's the last yeah. year that the foreign that the international feature winner wasn't nominated in another category. Like, I, since then, it's been Roma, Parasite, Another Round, Drive My Car. So it feels like the Academy wasn't yet where it is now in terms of paying attention to, to international film in general.
4: Right. Yeah. I mean that I think that's the answer. Is it just wasn't it has it's developed so rapidly the last few years. Um, but I think that was just before you really saw that. Yeah, yeah and
2: it was it didn't even make the short list that year. I remember it got cut, you know, when that list of however many comes out where it's the short list to be considered for the nominee. So it it was cut from the process pretty early.
3: Yeah, it feels like that had to be a catalyst to sort of the which is the amazing thing that the Academy is doing, which is becoming more international and that, you know, and the fact that this was so close to Parasite and Roma and yet completely ignored, it feels like, yeah, that this snub had to have sort of been a catalyst for change, which, I mean, it's sort of a parallel to the movie in terms of, you know, not getting your due, you know, hmm. but sort of paving the way for future generations. So, which is kind of bittersweet.
0: I was also looking back at the, um, How to Survive a Plague, the documentary about ACT UP in America, um, which lost the best documentary feature Oscar to Searching for Sugar Man in 2012. Um, Kind of a classic, like they go for the crowd pleaser. Searching for Sugar Man is not a bad movie, but um, How to Survive a Plague is so bracing and really kind of similar ways to BPM from what I remember of it. Um, And it it, it didn't win. It's kind of a, a familiar story. Richard, you've talked about, I think you talked about Philadelphia last week a little bit in terms of, you know, the a movie with Tom Hanks, a straight actor playing this, you know, really landmark gay character and something you wouldn't take away. Um, and you have talked about Philadelphia, I think on like Check, a few years ago. And that, I think, still kind of stands up as, like, the Oscar AIDS movie. Like, Dallas Buyers Club has come since then. I mean, do, do you watch BPM and think, like, my God, why can't we ever, like, pull it together and recognize something that feels this real
5: Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, Philadelphia, you know, very much a product of its time and all of its, you know, slight failings. I think that movie kind of has a bad rap. I I think it actually is a kind of striking film that really spoke to that era, you know, um, and to think of it as a kind of an act of atonement in some cases on Jonathan Demme's part, because... The lore is that he made that movie because um, he was so horrified by the reaction to Silence of the Lambs from the LGBTQ plus community at the time. But, you know, again, product of its time, um, I I think that where BPM sits in relation to Philadelphia is, um, I don't know if people have watched Philadelphia, you know, recently and have memory of this, but there's this scene where this very straightforward film suddenly kind of veers into the abstract when Tom Hanks's character is listening to this opera and and he's talking to Denzel Washington about what the opera means to him and it's the camera is kind of doing interesting things and there's these flashes of color kind of it's a really that sequence is kind of the entirety of BPM in a way <laughs> you know because I think mm. that um, I, I think it's important that that at the time. These narratives were told to, you know, presumably straight audiences all around the country who maybe didn't have firsthand knowledge of this or experience with this, um, that it was told kind of just the facts, like, an, but it would also, you know, a clear emotional arc. Whereas BPM feels like, not that it excludes anyone, but it feels much more sort of in community, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and I think that that I think both things can and should exist, but I think they're distinct in that way. You know, and I think that the inheritance, the play that Chris mentioned, um, this big two-part thing that was in London and much hailed, and then came to New York and didn't fare quite so well. I, I think that was trying to do something similar, a sort of in-community discussion about about the loss of of uh, you know a, a huge swath of a generation of gay men, but I think it didn't quite get there. I think that in the late 2010s, uh, AIDS wars, <laughs> I think that BPM still comes out on top.
3: Yeah. and it should be said BPM. One, that Cesar, so it wasn't like, it, you know, unheralded after... Yeah, it was Gav like a big
0: box day. office hit in France, which yeah, is yeah,
3: great. Huge.
5: And and also, it should be mentioned, I don't... Uh, um, that This is based on Campio's own experience. The character who dies in the film is based on... Sean uh, is based on someone very real to Rhonda Kimpio, and I think that also really helps that sense of kind of visceral intimacy, um, much in the same way that certain characters in Angels in America were based on people that Tony Kushner knew.
4: It recalls the normal heart, too, a little bit, um, particularly that looking at it from the inside. Yeah, and I
3: was going to just offer rent for Jonathan Larson and <laughs> <laughs> said all, you know, all these um, classic narratives. Yeah, I will say I have never seen Philadelphia, Richard, so the way you just described it does actually make me want to touch down and, and give it a shot because I, you know... It's I definitely heard,
0: worth it, I would say. Okay.
5: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mentioned the character Sean. I, I just wanted to shout out the actor Nahuel Perez Biscayart, who plays him, who is so incredible and ah.
0: incredible. He had been yeah, rumored amazing. to be
5: like close to winning Best Actor at Cannes. That didn't happen, but just a really, really great performance um, that uh, feels like kind of the driving engine of the film. I mean, Arnaud Valois is also really good as Nathan, but um, I think he really uh, Biscayart really sells the film and. and I told him as much at the queer palm party at Cannes and um, it didn't go very well. I'll just say that he was very nice, but it was um, there was a language barrier and also just Mm. to me kind of stammering over my words. But um, I think it's also fun to note that Adele Hanel is in this film. Yes. um, And uh, she, you know, obviously was from Portrait of Lady on Fire the previous year at Cannes in 2016. She'd been in Dardenne Brothers film. And Hanel recently did an interview where she said she's quit the film industry because she, <gasps> yeah. um, she's a very big leftist. And she's like, it does not align with my politics. This industry is corrupt, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so I'm going to go do theater, which I th- you know, I've, I watched the interview with, you know, um, English subtitles. And she's uh, a real force of intellect and, and conviction and, and a fascinating figure in, in the French film industry. Um, and I think that's so interestingly reflected um, in this film, in her character.
3: I was about to be so upset to, that when when you said she quit uh, film, but if she's doing theater, that's okay. I'll fly to France. I'll, do, <laughs> I'll go. I'll go see her on stage. And didn't she protest the Cesar Awards re, like recently?
4: She walked out when Roman Polanski was presented with an there award. There we go. I believe, okay. at the and Cesar
1: that's a awards.
5: big deal
4: in France to do that. You know, like yeah. they still love their Polanski. <laughs> so, um, yeah, <laughs> well, I think he won Best Director. She, that. She, she's yeah. an
5: admirable figure uh, in that industry. I hope that somehow she can be lured back, at least maybe into super independent film, because she's such a good performer and um,
0: oh,
3: phenomenal. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, you can watch BPM on Pluto TV, which is how I watched it, but there will be ads in it, uh, fair warning, and you can also rent it on wherever else you rent movies, and truly it is two and a half hours with subtitles, really well spent, and like maybe a cathartic cry at the end, I mean, it's still sad, but um I think it's just, it's really something that you shouldn't miss, so go catch up with it.
5: So now we're going to turn to uh, the discussion that Chris and I had with our fellow theater goers. Katie, you said dorks. I think geeks is a lot kinder. <laughs> no, I'm theater so geeks. sorry. I'm not up to date even. on the language. I would take nerds. Dork <laughs> and dweeb. Those are, those are the mean ones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so we, uh, we had Jackson McHenry from Vulture and Esther Zuckerman from Thrillist, people who Chris and I have definitely seen out at the theater uh, throughout this whole 2021 2022 season uh yeah so it was a lively perhaps long (laughs) conversation (laughs) but worth Uh, every
3: second yeah
5: (laughs) about who who could win um on sunday night and uh maybe who should win also
3: yeah and i some of the categories i think we still we really didn't land on exactly anyone so you know time time will tell who takes it home Well, it's
5: June, uh, early June, uh, so in addition to the start of Pride Month, although it always seems related. I mean, these things are all causally connected. Uh, it's also Tony season. Um, the Tony Awards are on Sunday night. Uh, the return to the regular June date after last year's weird thing. And it was in the fall, I think it was. Um, so it's actually hasn't been that long since we've had a Tony Awards. But um, these are awards and we do cover awards on this podcast, even if we don't talk a lot about theater. So I thought I would convene an expert panel to go through uh, the potential big winners or potential big losers. Um, so you can win your Tony's pool uh, if you are still doing that in 2022. <laughs> uh, so I'm joined by uh, VF staff writer, Chris Murphy. Hi. Uh, Vulture Senior Writer Jackson McHenry. Hello, hello. And Thrillist Senior Writer Esther Zuckerman.
3: Hello. Uh,
5: I'm so happy to have you all here. I have run into all of you at various times in the theater, uh, as we have tried to see as much as we can. Jackson, my guess is you have probably won the tally in terms of having seen the most, uh, largely because it's a big part of your your beat at Vulture. So I want to ask you first, you, I'm also working off of a handy, you did a predictions thing for Vulture of what's going to win. What do you think the the sort of narrative of the season was if there was one and beyond like we're back from COVID? Was there anything that unified this season um, past that kind of landmark moment?
6: It feels like it's been a, a three-part season almost because of the the COVID delay and that there were shows that opened last summer and fall that were sort of the first out of the gates. I guess officially it was Bruce Springsteen's little sort of encampment at the St. James doing his show. (laughs) Um, And then Passover, which is a play about police violence um, that did not get uh, any nominations, which is frustrating, I think. Um, But and, And then a sort of whole batch of what felt like more experimental plays that were opening in the fall, that were sort of before producers wanted to bring out the big blockbusters that they had planned for the spring, kind of testing the waters, testing the ticket sales, um, and then those were opening alongside the sort of major juggernauts like Wicked and Lion King and everything. And then a batch of shows that were in performances that are technically still part of this season, but were in performances in last, you know, March and then reopened. Things like Six and The Girl from the North Country um, that now feel like they've been open for three years um, and are mysteriously in competition against everything else. And then finally, the arrivals from this spring, the the shows that would have been sort of traditionally Tony competitors that all seem to squeeze into April I think there were something like fifteen uh, openings um, in over the course of April. I saw our theater critic Helen Shaw um, at all of these performances. She just looked increasingly wearied. I was like, "Can we like get you, you know, lumbar support um, <laughs> through through insurance or something?" But those were things like Macbeth with Daniel Craig, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Matthew Broderick in Plaza Suite. Um, but also sort of new arrivals like A Strange Loop, which had been off Broadway way before the pandemic, and even Funny Girl. And so it's sort of like weird to think of all of these separate categories and separate contexts in which all these shows were developed and suddenly be like, okay, you have to choose the best of these very different um, productions and they all have different goals. So, yeah.
5: Yeah, I think you've, you've articulated that well. It, it did feel kind of scattered between revisiting stuff that I had seen right before the shutdown and or, or stuff I was anticipating seeing and then just brand new things. Um, and, and I think somewhere in there, I did have that feeling of, you know, Broadway's back baby. Um, Esther... Was there a show or a moment in a show that you most potently felt that throughout this season, like that Broadway really was truly back?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, weirdly, the thing that I was going to say was I went with Jackson to the reopening of The Lion King. Oh, where, sure. Yeah, that counts. Where, where Julie Taymor came out and gave a speech about how Broadway's back and I started crying, which doesn't involve this year's <laughs> Tony season at all. Um, but it does feel like I was going to say it does feel this strange strange loop maybe, but um, of this, of this Tony season involves the fact that I saw six in March 2020, the weekend before the shutdown. And then that Monday, somebody who an usher in the theater had tested positive and I wasn't sure whether I should have even gone. And then I saw it again, like, and I was like, oh, okay, we're Back, I guess, but I'm repeating the same thing. So that's sort of the strange way I felt uh, sort of ushered back into this Tony season.
5: Yeah, Chris, you know, you, in addition to being a great writer for us, you're, you're also a performer, you have a history of performing. And I'm curious, like, you know, a lot of people in the theater community. Has that sentiment, at least in terms of Broadway, permeated to the performers? I know it's been a very fraught experience, but like because people keep getting sick and having to be out and then coming back and it's it's a lot. So from the industry side of things, um, how do you think this season has been for them?
3: I think that's a really interesting question. I do think that's quite true that it has sort of permeated into like the performances. Kind of similar to Esther somehow in the in the midst of Tony season I saw Wicked twice in a week, which also is not up for any 2022 uh, Tony awards, but one of the performances I saw, Glinda, the first Black Glinda, she was out, um, and I saw her her come back for the second show. Um, and you, the energy in the room is palpable. You can feel sort of the energy of the performers on stage and their connection. It's sort of unlike anything that I sort of felt before. Um, the Massive shutdown I mean Richard We saw it come from away I think that was like The first performance back For that cast And it felt like A literal rock concert <laughs> Like Bruce Springsteen level Sort of um, Just energy And vibe And just Electricity So And that's sort of on the the good side of things, right? So it's like, really, the energy is so palpable in the room. But then on sort of the upsetting side, I don't know if people saw this, but Beanie Feldstein, who's um, Fanny Bryce, she just tested positive for COVID, I think, in the last 24 hours. So now, you know, she has to miss a swath of shows because of that. Um, So as much as we might feel that yeah, you know, we're sort of, Broadway has been back since, like, the September 20, the uh, 21 Tonys. Um, COVID, it's still very much a player in the game, and it does really affect these runs of the shows, and you can see it, you can feel it with the performers.
1: Broadway also feels like a weird canary in the coal mine with COVID, in a way, because I think people are very susceptible, you know, with the dressing rooms are small, the backstage are small, and so, like, Through the Omicron waves, waves, plural, um, you know, we've seen shows having to take breaks. We've seen major stars like the Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick both getting COVID at the same time. You know, it's felt like as Chris was saying, it's felt sort of stop and start. And you sort of get when shows start having to cancel performances, you get that like feeling in your throat like, oh, no, it's happening again.
6: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it's meant that a lot of these shows have had to fall back on their understudies and swings, and especially the, the big shows like The Lion King and Wicked have managed to stay open because they have just banks of emergency alphabas they can call out of retirement in <laughs> Michigan, which is literally what they did for one of them, um, to do a performance. Um, that was and, amazing. <laughs> and the newer shows have had to shut down, which has been very hard for them financially because they just don't have as many people who know the parts. But there's also been a push... For some acknowledgement at the Tony Awards of the understudies and swings and ensemble members this season, um, and I believe Kate Schindel, the equity president, was tweeting about how, like, despite rumors that it won't happen, yes, something will happen. Um, who knows? Given it's CBS, probably not very much. But um, <laughs> it does feel like there should be some sort of category. You put in the emergency alphabets, you put in the emergency nalas. Julie Banco being Feldstein's understudy. Jennifer Samard, who is Patty LuP, one of the understudies for Joanne and Company is already nominated. So, you know, let, let them do an all understudy number.
3: <laughs> it seems at this point, especially after this season, that it's sort of crazy that there isn't either a best ensemble Tony or like a best swing or a best understudy or some like legitimate acknowledgement. I mean, obviously, I hope they have a number, they have a moment, but like an actual award. I mean, the swing tracks in these shows, you know, you have to know at least, you know, three to four to five to eight different tracks for these shows. It's really incredible. And, you know, they never really necessarily get their due. So I hope I hope that that's at least, you know, that conversation extends beyond Sunday night. If, you know, we need to... Acknowledge them in some way, I feel.
5: And I think they shouldn't be taken for granted, considering a friend of mine was in an off-Broadway show, and I and I and after the show, I said, oh, that was great, you want to meet for a drink? And he said, oh, I'm really not allowed to be indoors for the run of this, because we don't have understudies, <laughs> like, pretty much. So it's amazing that those resources are there, and I, I agree, they should be celebrated. Also talking about going back to Wicked, going back to Lion King, like... I feel like they should have a Tony, some sort of Tony category for like, still trucking along, like you know, or like, or, or like an eighteenth replacement of Alphabet. I mean, Emergency Alphabet is a great name for a, a memoir if anyone wants to take that. But
3: the old gal still got it <laughs> yeah. award, you know. You got-
5: Um, Well, let's get into specific uh, who's going to win, maybe who got snubbed, if people have opinions on that. Um, And I figure because it's usually the big ticket driver uh, in in any given Broadway season, although maybe not so this year. um, Let's start with musical. So in the best musical category, you have Girl from the North Country, uh, which Jackson mentioned, MJ about Michael Jackson, Mr. Saturday Night, which is a stage version of the Billy Crystal film from a long time ago, uh, Paradise Square, which I actually embarrassingly don't know much about, uh, Six, the musical, and A Strange Loop. Um, Now, Jackson, you have predicted A Strange Loop winning. I'm
1: going
3: to
5: guess that Esther and Chris, you are in consensus with that decision.
3: Yeah, I'm going to go all in on that, all in on that one.
1: I will say I'm a little, like, I'm worried because I'm rooted, very actively rooting for A Strange Loop. I am I have a slight worry about Six. I, I don't think it's really going to happen. I still would, I guess, place money, but Six has been just such an enormous crowd pleaser over the however many odd sort of disjointed years it's been running and has the sort of, like, little girl showing up dressed like, Queen's um, sort of vibe to it, but I'd say a strangely, generally.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well, on that note... Esther, I do feel like what you said in terms of how it came out—literally, like the day, like the day right before COVID sort of hit—sort um, of works against it in a way that it feels like it's been around for three times as long as, as basically every other nominee. So, as much as Six is a crowd pleaser, it's fun. The score is amazing. They're making it into a movie. They're filming it professionally. I think they just announced that. So, it, it's having a moment. I do think it's hard to ignore Michael R. Jackson's incredible, groundbreaking, never-before-seen Pulitzer Prize win original musical, A Strange Loop. So.
6: Yeah. In like a just world, COVID would have not happened. And one of the many small improvements from that would be that Six would have already won a Tony for the 2019-2020 yeah. season for Best Musical. Um, but I, I do think, like Esther said, the case for Six is that a lot of Tony voters are producers and especially road producers who have a vested interest in trying to get a Best Musical that is a moneymaker. maker. Because then it makes it easier to advertise your, you know, San Francisco engagement of the show. But I think there's also such a vested interest in in the sort of artistic qualities of *The Strange Loop*. Its specificity. It's um, of the moment. It's already won a Pulitzer. It's opened just right in the right before the Tony voting season. So. I'm hoping for a band's visit like when there.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting... Strange Loop is so fascinating. I I saw it off-Broadway and um, in that intimate space with probably the barrier to entry financially, the audience felt younger than a Broadway audience does. It felt more diverse than a Broadway audience does. When I went to go see it on Broadway, and this is a show that deals with Black queer sexuality and the theater and all of this stuff. And and it, it's very pointed in, in a Broadway context at the audience. It's performed to in a way, which you might think could be kind of alienating. I mean, when I went, there were two Black women sitting behind me. And at one point, one of them turned to her friend and said, do white people get this? <laughs> and, you know, the, the Tony voters, uh, it's not the most diverse body of awards voters, um, but I think in some way, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone here, but like, I feel like that alienation or that intended alienation actually works in this show's favor because it is very viscerally, I think, proving one of its points in that way.
1: I will say I saw it um, with a friend and then I sent my uh, white older parents to go see it with saying it's amazing. And they came out and loved it. So, you know, to to that sort of Tony voter demographic, um, thumbs up.
3: <laughs> I, I would say on that note, like the sort of barn burning of it and that it's like sort of takes on the Broadway establishment directly and still it comes out successful. That sort of exists. And, you know, it takes on not only Broadway, but Tyler Perry, you know, white gay, you know. Th- Patriarchal culture—all of these different systems are sort of equally sort of um, raised to the ground, if you will, in an artistic and sort of undeniable way. That it does—it doesn't feel like it just takes on probably It's sort really of like everyone gets everyone gets an equal like punch and gets to sort of look inward and you know inward at themselves. So I do think that sort of also works in its favor.
5: In that in that predictive view, Jackson, how far do you see a strange loop going in terms of other wins? I mean, you have great performances i think there are three nominations in both featured and lead and uh, obviously michael r jackson himself do do you see like a strange loop sweep on its way
6: i think it certainly could be possible for, uh, especially in the terms of the book feels very likely as for a win for it especially if it's going up against 6 wasn't nominated for its book and i can't imagine trying to reward the sort of weird self-justifications of the Michael Jackson musicals book. Um, it is wild. Nottage already has two Pulitzers and then she wrote this and it's it's questionable. Um, but uh, its score I think might actually is something that I can imagine breaking in Six's favor um, just because Six is so dependent on all of these pastiche pop songs that sound like great pop songs. Um, and then Strange Loop, as we said, takes on everything, even has some very pointed Scott Rudin jokes. Um, and in the performance categories, it's going up against a show that was engineered by Scott Rudin, the, the massive money-making super show that is The Music Man. And as, as wonderful and incredible as Jaquel Spivey is in A Strange Loop, I think it is very hard to go up against Hugh Jackman uh, for a leading actor in a musical he is you know the entire raison d'etre for the music man the audiences love him he can get the broadway cares um auction to to sell there's one clip of him getting auction members to pay twenty thousand dollars for a whistle with his saliva on it at the end of the show
3: um, That's a oh, it, it's wild <laughs> and,
6: and the weird thing is i think he's objectively miscast as harold hill it's not a great performance it's sort of against his vocal range um and sutton foster his co-star is similarly miscast um And in some ways, she has better charisma. (laughs) Um, She makes
1: it work better than he makes it work. (laughs) This
6: is my long-winded way of saying that I do sort of imagine that Hugh Jackman will be getting the award, even though that hurts my heart.
5: (laughs) In that way, the the show would prove a little critic-proof because there was much ballyhoo about the Music Man for years. uh, And yet it kind of, I mean, obviously it sold a lot of tickets, but when I went, it was a Wednesday matinee, so maybe that was partly to blame, but like... I could kind of feel the audience trying to convince themselves they were having a great time. <laughs> uh, or maybe I was just projecting. But I, I guess it doesn't really matter because Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman, with all of the financial might behind them in that show, uh, might just prove undeniable, I suppose.
3: I mean, It's kind of funny in the comparison to like what A Strange Loop is about is, is that the music band like, is the establishment. You can't have... Like, a more sort of establishment musical with then you have these glitzy like Broadway stars and as much as Hugh Jackman is a movie star he's paid his dues he has a Tony he hosted the Tony Awards like he is sort of you know probably arguably Broadway's biggest male lead star you know crossover star that we have so I also like Jackson I also am worried that you know Hugh and his wide vibrato might sing all the way to the the Tonys but that being said too I, I also recently saw Mr. Saturday Night which I sort of specifically went because I wanted to see Shoshana Bean who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress and she did call out so that was tough for me (laughs) but um, I was actually sort of like impressed or wondering I'm not a huge Billy Crystal guy you know I mean I love when Harry Met Sally. He's wonderful. Mike Wazowski, fantastic. But um, there seemed to be just, like, a lot of love for him in the room. It's just, like, it's basically just him doing whatever he wants in a musical, doing, like, his, you know, his shtick for a while. And, like, he's also, you know, a la Hugh Jackman, one of our few crossover theater Hollywood artists. So, I don't know if there's, like, a sentimental wave for that, even though Mr. Saturday Night sort of came in under for me. It wasn't my, not my favorite show of the season. I sort of was sold a, I thought it was going to be, like, lots of, like, showgirls and dances. And it's just sort of like a small seven person, you know, older cast, you know, singing, doing their songs. Um, So I don't know if anybody thinks that could also happen.
1: Well, and I also I actually wanted to ask any of you. I didn't see MJ, but I have also heard I have heard sort of buzz uh, for Miles Frost as a potential candidate for the role. So I wanted to sort of ask anyone if, if you think that could possibly happen.
5: Well, I think the helpful thing with MJ is that there's no controversy with that show. You know, it's just, it's an easy one to vote for. Um, I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I I think that's I think that's definitely true. Esther the MJ definitely has its diehard fans. Um, whether those people are diehard theater fans or are diehard MJ fans or both, I don't know. But I think that with Crystal and and um, Jackman, there's always the potential that they split the sentiment vote and that someone like Jaquel Spivey or Miles Frost could kind of sneak in there. Um, if you were going to break that tie, I would probably give it to Spivey just because um, maybe that would get swept up with the broader Strange Loop momentum.
3: I hear, I haven't seen MJ either, but I have heard from a bunch of people that it is actually a surprisingly surprisingly like, very fun, very dancey musical and that Miles Frost does a really wonderful work. But I've heard more... Uh, Jaquel is like sort of like, you know, star, like standout. And Miles is a part of a really great ensemble that's a really talented ensemble of actors and performers in MJ. So I guess I would also defer to Richard. I would, I think that would happen.
6: I, I have seen MJ and I, I, I did not have a great time, but it is a, I mean, just because I was sort of haunted the entire time by just thinking about the allegations against him. Um, but it is a spectacular dance whole sequence Christopher Wilden who directed it and did the choreography um, it does feel like there's sort of an outside chance and maybe not even an outside chance a good chance of it winning for choreography which isn't in itself interesting because you're like how much is it choreography for the show how much is it just perfectly replicating um, Michael Jackson's dangerous tour how does that work how does authorship work in choreography um, but yes and Miles Frost is giving a very very perfect exact impersonation of Michael Jackson that I think, you know, there could be there could be a branch of Tony voters that are like, love the show.
3: Great spectacle. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> you might have been the person who actually told me that. <laughs> you told me that it's like a good dance. OK, that's all coming back to me. They now. put out the, the
6: first number from MJ on, on Twitter at one point, And I remember one of my friends being like, the number of retweets this is getting, the, the amount of heat this is getting, you, you never know.
5: Yeah. And I guess, you know, Jackson, you're predicting Sutton Foster to win uh, in the lead actress category. I would maybe say just for my own somewhat limited viewing that Sharon D. Clark from Carolina Change could be the spoiler there just because that's a very respected show that got a revival that felt like it was done because it was timely, but also because Carolina Change in its original run um, maybe didn't quite get the uh attention it deserved because it came out the same year as wicked right and avenue q and there's a documentary about that tony season and taboo i believe is the other one in, in that running
3: that's the um, outlier of the yeah <laughs> yeah
5: so I, there was a sense of like you know justice for carolina change in 2021-22 season um but it was long enough ago it was in the fall that i i don't know if, if it still has the that momentum
1: yeah, I mean, I was. I hope that it could win musical revival, but I also doubt it with uh, the Music Man, sort of, as everything that we've mentioned about the Music Man, sort of, so far, even though. It was not a very good production, and Carolina Change was a very good production. Well, Music Man
5: evokes everyone's mediocre high school production, so it, it <laughs> yeah. gets that nostalgia factor.
1: And, of course, then there's Company, too, the, the gender-swapped Company. Um, and, and
6: Company has been literally just putting Stephen Sondheim's face on playbills um, for the month of May, which is a little, you know, bald-faced, just, you know, look, you love Sondheim. <laughs> yeah. He is gone. Time to reward it. Um, the sort of like what was the *Imitation Games* campaign? Honor the man, honor the movie. Um, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> honor the man, honor honor the very British, not very New Yorky feeling gender swapped musical.
3: Well, it's interesting that the company, Caroline Rechange, um Music Man, sort of uh, three-way fight, that company, actually their lead actress, Katrina Lenk, who won the Tony for the band's visit, actually did not get nominated. She, some would say that's a snub. Others would say that makes sense. Um, so it seems like momentum-wise... Change might actually have a little bit more in that way um, because Patty Lapone probably just going to walk away with it right it's Patty Lapone finally playing Joanne uh, in company on Broadway she's been doing this for 10 years and you know in one way or another between the Kennedy Center and the Sondheim Red dress 80th birthday celebration so that seems sort of almost uh, like the biggest locky lock that there is whether or not you think she really worked in this production or if you think this production really worked there, you know, I have some feelings about it. It's not my, not my favorite production of company. I'm a big, rival Esparza, John Doyle, 2007 um, or I think six or whatnot. Um, that was more for me, but that's a long way of saying I am hopeful Sharon D. Clark, you know, could emerge uh, victorious. And maybe that would mean that there might be some, you know, some slight little chance that like Carolyn or change with a gorgeous shooting to story score written by, Tony Kushner, just a really phenomenal, weird operatic musical about um, you know, a, a black woman who's a maid for a Jewish family um, in Louisiana in the '60s that really never got its due. There might, be, there might be a way. Or Tamika Lawrence, who's amazing as Dot. She's in the Best Supporting Actress category, and she was in Black No More, which was off-Broadway, and had a really banner year, and she just killed at miscast, uh, <laughs> singing, uh, she was singing Lost in the Wilderness, and she forgot the words at the end, and she actually made up lyrics that were better than what Stephen Schwartz wrote, and I'll say <laughs> it.
5: Well, with that, uh, let's move over to the Play category which is, uh, in recent years, feels like the more star-studded, although they're, as we have mentioned, big stars uh, in the musicals. Um, So the best play nominees are Lynn Nottage's Clydes, um, Martin McDonough's Hangmen, The Lehman Trilogy from Stefano Mastini and Ben Power, The Minutes, which is Tracy Letts, uh, and Skeleton Crew by Dominique So Jackson, you have predicted The Lehman Trilogy. Um, That was probably the best thing I saw on Broadway this season, so I am going to agree with that, both in predictive sense and also... Um you know that's what I would like to see win I think at this point, but Jackson, would that be your pick too? um not just a prediction but also your favorite
6: i i it's it's sort of a lot of the plays that I most loved are not nominated in the category. I, I like the Lehman trilogy a lot. I really admired it. I had there, a lot of sort of smaller quibbles that added up to a, just a, like pangs of dissatisfaction in it it has a it has an odd way of sort of papering over because it's about the history of the the Lehman Brothers Empire. Um, And the three actors play all sorts of characters throughout. And it sort of elides the history of slavery um, in in the beginnings of their sort of cotton trading um, in a way that sort of they've added. I think they've changed it from the British production and added a little bit of an acknowledgement, but it sort of carries on. And the the big tragedy is more about their ambition Um, in a way that you're like, these are incredibly precise performances. This is incredibly... Well done, beautiful spinning set. Um, I feel like the spinning set is going to win because people just love it when sets spin. <laughs> um, but there there's there's just a little bit of like not quite as 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 hooked in as as I would have liked. and there there are plays left off, like, for instance, Dana H, and is this a room which played in uh, rap at the same theater, alternating performances last fall, which were both small downtown productions. Um is this the room? is the reality winner? Um, arrest transcript performed as a script, and with the moments where there were um, things uh, censored, just sort of bleeps, and, and it goes dark and it's left off. And and Dana H is this incredibly compelling, haunting lip sync basically reenactment from Deirdre O'Connell, a Downtown Theater legend um who is also in the amazon uh, amazon series out range i discovered watching it this week and she like came in and my roommate was like this actress is fun and i was like oh my god that's legend <laughs> deirdre o'connell um but uh she she lip syncs the this playwright lucas Nias mother's interviews about being abducted um in florida and taken around by a man, man, man who was an, a white nationalist um and so I personally would choose Dana H. as the best play, but it's not nominated. Um, yeah. Deirdre and, and,
1: O'Connell is nominated, though, and yes. I really, really hope she wins. I don't think she will, but I would love that win. That, that would be, be an amazing I, I predicted
6: win. her as just, like, a, I can't choose anyone else, even though, yeah. and, and, and in sort of, like, and Mary Louise Parker, who I think also maybe is, is going to win.
2: But
1: I think knows? Mary Louise Parker yeah. will win, but...
6: If Deirdre wins, she wins
5: a $10,000 tip and decides which other queen goes home, right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, I, I also am pulling for Deirdre, but didn't Mary Louise Parker, she just won the last in the September tones, I mean, right?
6: The question is whether anyone remembers that uh, Mary Louise Parker won last September. Like I had forgotten and I was like, right, that would be two years of best actress in a row, which Mary Louise Parker deserves it. Mary Louise Parker is incredible. How I Learned to Drive is incredible. She did How I Learned to Drive. True. More than 20 years ago with David Morse in his back, and that's haunting. I was um, so
5: but. excited about How I Learned to Drive because it was a play that I read in college. Uh, it, it was in our theater textbook, and in there were you know little black and white photos of Parker and Morse in the original production. And it was one of those things where you just say... Well, gee, it would have been cool to see that. Maybe I'll try to find it in some sort of video archive. Um, and then they actually just did it again. <laughs> and and I, while I found Parker to be, you know, as as she was in the Sound Inside, which she won for last year, um, so incredible. I was really blown away by David Morris, who I'd never seen on stage. And that is such a tricky part where he's playing this loving but also abusive uncle um, to the lead character played by Parker. It's a kind of memory play. Um, I, I was just really blown away by him. And I, and I see, Jackson, you've predicted that he'll win. And I I, I mean, if, if that show wins something, it would be pretty cool if it was him.
6: Yeah. And I think that is just an incredibly tricky, haunting, unnerving performance. And it's so much about him having to seem both pathetic and absolutely horrible in at the same time
5: yeah um, and that degree of difficulty is often
1: for both of them something honest. that voters
5: you know they they take a shine to that because it it they're not only thinking about the work um uh you know as a whole, but it's like, gee, to do that on a Tuesday night, like you know uh and then it, twice the next day, it just yeah, it seems like a lot.
6: And I think there's a good amount of sort of theater goodwill built up for David Morse. He was in the Denzel, Iceman Cometh that also spawned Austin Butler into finally getting Elvis. Spawned is a <laughs> <laughs> Reformed him from The Carrie Diaries to Denzel. an incredible actor t- telling Baz Lerman whatever. But David Morse was, I think, the best performance in that Iceman Cometh by far. Um, and then sort of maybe a little bit of like a Laurie Metcalf back in like 2015 where it was like, she's been in so, in so much good theater and then finally everyone's like, right But anyway.
3: It also helps, too, for his category that Every the three Lehman Trilogy uh, actors, they all got nominated. It's a pretty big, I think there are seven nominees. So, I mean, if we're talking about vote splitting, I don't know how you pick between the three Lehman Trilogy. brothers. Um, and then, sorry um, sorry to American Buffalo, we're sort of not really in a mammoth space, I think, as a community right now. So the, already that sort of, I think, creates a, a little bit of a pathway for David Morris to take it. And yes, as everyone said, him and Mary Louise Parker were both really phenomenal in it.
5: One of the most scrutinized categories uh, in the, on the play side of things, and for reasons that I think are very frustrating, uh, is featured actor in a play because um, Jesse Williams, who, Jackson, you've predicted to win for Take Me Out, uh, that performance became very famous online because although they take your phone and put it in a sealed kind of mylar bag or or neoprene bag, uh, and so there's not supposed to be any footage of the nudity in the show, something did leak out and all of a sudden this Broadway play that Richard Greenberg wrote, you know, 20-something years ago was, like, trending on Twitter do you think any of you think that helps or harms uh, Jesse Williams's chances? I would assume kind of help, in, in a kind of cynical way.
6: I, I, I that was part of the reason why I predicted him just partially because he has handled it in a an incredibly like in, in a way that he shouldn't have to deal with. they they're so explicit in the theater. It's a show about a man coming out on a baseball team and all of the tension that that inflicts and has scenes where they're nude in locking rooms, taking showers, where the point is the awkwardness of the nudity and the way in which people start to observe each other and think about, you know, sexual attraction and think about being looked at, um, which disrupts the presumably straight atmosphere or whatever. Um, And he has really handled it with a commitment to saying, you know, theater should be a a space that we respect and we are trying to do this because we're performative and we're trying to tell a story. And I think... It's, it's sort of him and Jesse Williams. And then, um, Oh God, what's his name? The third actor who's Michael
3: Oberholzer, who's really yes.
6: great. Who's really great. And, and he plays a sort of raging homophobe character. Um, and all three of them are, are really good and it's a great ensemble. And I would, I was sad that Brandon Durden, who is uh, wonderful as sort of the counterpoint to Jesse's character, who's this big star, um, who was also great in the skeleton true. There should just be a Brandon Durden award for being great in multiple shows. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, I think that that Jesse Williams—he's also he's also a TV star—and there's sort of some skepticism of like, oh, you're coming into Broadway from Grey's Anatomy, you're not really a true theater person. And he's kind of proven his commitment to the theater in a way. Yeah, that, there's
1: there was literally a Variety headline that I kept seeing that was like, Jesse Williams is a theater guy now. It was very much explicit. It felt like very much an explicit like, okay, this guy is going to win the Tony. This is like his anointment that he can like make the transition from one to another.
3: I would say, yeah, I think it only like it it could only sort of push the needle if the performance is actually good. And he does really wonderful work. Jesse Williams um, can cry his face off. When I was there, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, Grace (laughs) anatomy they really teach you how to cry on command. Like that's like they really they really nail that in. Um, But his performance was really wonderful. And he's handled this whole entire thing with such grace and such Attacked, that I do feel that he's the one who's going to sort of sneak on in and take the and take it.
5: I hope that uh, if Patty LaPone wins uh, on Sunday, that her speech is just her yelling at the audience, "Don't take photos of the actors." Uh, and then you know, <laughs>
1: I hope I hope it's a recreation of her yelling at the woman without the mask.
6: <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I mean that that that
1: when she screamed bullshit,
6: <laughs> when she yelled at the woman at the mask after the talk back, and then she also was, was like, the woman was like we pay your salary as attendees and she was like Chris Harper the producer of company uh, plays my salary and I was like this is also just a really good campaign for Chris Harper and company that yeah. <laughs> everyone's just... <laughs> if they were not going to vote for Patty LuPone already all of the producers are like wow she knows our name see
5: who who, who <laughs> needs onstage slaps we have the Tonys have plenty of their own campaigning drama uh, to be appreciated um, well I want to thank you guys for all for uh, talking to me about this um, before I let you go I'm going to go one by one and maybe in a category we haven't covered or someone's name we haven't mentioned I'll start with you Jackson, um, do you have a favorite that you're hoping to see win something on Sunday?
6: Um, I have just two things. One is that if A Strange Loop wins, we should note the fact that Jennifer Hudson is a producer on A Strange Loop. She's um, among a group of of celebrities that sort of at the last minute came in, like John uh, John Legend producing, what was it, Jitney, and that's how he has an EGOT. If she wins a Tony, if it wins a Tony, she wins a Tony. She has an EGOT, which is a great redemption story from the time that Jennifer Hudson was not nominated for a Tony when she was in The Color Purple and tweeted that she was being used for her celebrity, not her talent, which Mm. doesn't make sense, but is actually kind of what you're doing as a producer. Um, (laughs) And then in terms of the other performances, I just wanted to shout out the Lincoln Center revival of The Skin of Our Teeth, I thought was really incredible, um, directed by Liliana Blaine Cruz. And especially Gabby Beans, who did get a nomination in, in Leading Actress, um, but is this young performer who plays Sabina, the maid, a character in Thornton Wilder's play who occasionally breaks the reality and talks to the audience about how much she hates the play and it's confusing, um, was really wonderful. And when she's in the reality of the play, was doing a sort of like Eartha Kitt as Yzma style, Tallulah Bankhead, mid-century voice that just makes me laugh so much. Um and I am sure we will all be talking about Gabby Beans in future productions and who knows what, other, what else uh, soon. So I was happy for her.
5: And what a name. Um, <laughs> Esther, how about you?
1: I mean I was on it honest, I honestly mentioned the one that I, I really want which is um Deirdre O'Connell for Dana H I'll say that like just going through the category that that play should also win sound design because it's the most incredible sound design I've ever seen in those categories aren't broadcast on the toadies or maybe they will be in like the pre-show that's airing on Paramount plus I honestly have zero idea how that's working um thanks CBS but um yeah I I that was really sort of the blowing way. also shout out to because she's not going to win. But Jennifer Simard, who has been covering Patty Lapone when she was out, is also so funny in her original role in Company. And she won't get it, but props to her.
3: And Chris, how about you? Okay, I will say, I honestly, I saw Jennifer Simard as uh, Patty's part in Company, when she understudied, and I actually preferred it with Jennifer Simard in it, and that's that's gonna get people. They're gonna come for me in the DMs, and Patty's gonna you know scream at me. But that's just my take for the production. But okay, for real though, I want to just highlight two um, featured performances that I, I'm really personally rooting for. Um, I know we talked a lot about Strange Loop, but I think John Andrew Morrison as Thought Four in A Strange Loop. He's nominated for Best Featured Performer, or featured actor in a musical. He is a, does an amazing, an astounding so deeply felt work. It, that's just really um, incredible. He sort of plays one of the uh, main character Usher's thoughts in his head as well as his mom and we really see this sort of heartbreaking mix of sort of David morris in terms of love and also um, hate that comes with having a relationship, you know, uh, uh, a mother who's, who loves God maybe more than she loves her gay son and what that might entail. So really pulling for John Andrew Morrison uh, is phenomenal. And then, uh, in the best featured actress in a play, I was blown, blown, blown away by Kenita R. Miller in Four Color Girls Who Considered Suicide When the Rainbow uh, is Enough. Um, she uh, was, uh, they're all different colors in the rainbow. She was red and she has this really, speaking of things that I don't know how you do it eight times a week, she has this absolutely gut-punching monologue um, at the end of the play that uh, has stuck with me. And that show, that show's journey, which it was, you know, it was in danger of closing and then a, a viral campaign to sort of keep it open and to, and to buy tickets for, uh, you know, for other people specifically marginalized people um black people people of color to see the play has been really inspiring and um and on top of it she just had a baby like uh, last week <laughs> which is um, so I don't know how that happened while she's doing the show um so I'm really pulling for Kenita R. Miller and she's just a stalwart theater actress and she's fantastic
5: well, those are all great highlights. Um, I uh, have not seen POTUS, but I like the Ring of Rachel Dratch and a Tony nominee. So, I mean, I think that's 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 a victory unto itself. But um, uh, yeah, it's a it's a great selection. If some of these shows are running and you're planning a trip to New York, please do uh, try to see them.
1: Also, shout out to Al Morgan Lee, who I believe is the who is plays one of the thoughts in A Strange Loop, and I believe and she's nominated for featured actress in a musical, and I believe she is the first ever trans performer nominated for a Tony. Um, And she's incredible on top. (laughs) And
6: (laughs) And she has an incredible song where she plays a woman who is, because the main character in A Strange Loop is a usher at the Lion King. And to circle around to us talking about going back to the Lion King, she has a song where her character is just like, I like seeing the Lion King and And I like like seeing Wicked and that's enough for me. Um, and it is a really lovely song. So, you know.
5: So, yeah, if, if you're coming to New York, go see Lion King and Wicked. You know you want to. And then, but go do a third <laughs> and show. And nothing else.
6: No but, other <laughs> interesting theater. <laughs> yeah.
5: yeah. Uh, well, Jackson, Esther, and Chris, thank you so much for talking with me today. And uh, have fun watching the Tonys.
0: That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We're continuing our Pride flashbacks. We're moving into further into the 90s with In and Out. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find us on Twitter at little gold men, And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David.
4: David Canfield 97
0: And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And Chris. ChrisTress. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash LittleGoldMen or text 917-809-7096. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the weirdest description of the movie The Master goes to Richard Lawson.
5: There's a really, really moving hand job scene.